Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors and brought to you by the generous support of the Tennessee Valley Authority. To learn more about TVA's impact on our community, follow TVA on Instagram at TVA and on Twitter X at TVA News. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is Matt Rasmussen, TVA's Senior Vice President, Engineering and Operations Support. Matt, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about how you wanted to be an archaeologist as a kid and ended up in nuclear power plants, let me ask, what is in your morning cup? Well, I, I would classify my coffee taste as uh, high-class simple. So I, uh, I just, I love black coffee, but I'm not a Folgers guy. So yeah. today I'm, I think it's a Guatemalan blend from, uh, from Mad Priest. And I just, oh, I, I sounds l- good. it is good. I, I love to get just black coffee from all the places like Be Caffeinated and Goodman's and all the places around Chattanooga. You I like bold? I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, you and I get along very well then because that's the only way I can drink coffee. I mean, you put milk and coffee and that ruins it. I don't sugar. think I've put milk and coffee in 25 years. So. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and I don't think people appreciate enough the difference in different black coffees. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Well, welcome to my morning cup. I really appreciate you coming in and want to learn more about your career because as we were talking about earlier, careers are not a straight line. They're up and down and back and forth. And TVA is so ubiquitous with this area and the region. And the easy question is, how'd you get to TVA? But let's start back to growing up in Homewood, Alabama. Uh, talk about a little bit about that and how you ended up at Auburn. Yeah, so uh, if you've never been to Homewood, Alabama, it's like the quintessential southern town. And everybody who's from Homewood, Alabama loves Homewood, Alabama. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, every year they have a parade and festival that's the We Love Homewood Day. Really? <laughs> so they, when I say they really love being from Homewood, Alabama, they love being from Homewood, Alabama. Yeah. And it was a great place to grow up. Small town next to a big city. Yeah. Um, but I, growing up, my parents were divorced. Uh, my dad was actually, both my parents were lawyers. So my dad was an assistant U.S. attorney and my uh, mom was, she did civil rights and labor work. Um, so you cool. can kind of imagine why that, that marriage didn't last very well. Yeah. And, uh, and so they, uh, uh, so it was funny when I went to college, my, uh, my mom was like, hey, I'm going to help you go to college, but you can't go be a lawyer. And <laughs> so she, she didn't want me to do that for me. But go back to a little bit about personally, you know, I, I've got an older brother yeah. um, who's six years older than me, and I've got a younger half brother who's eight years younger than me. So, so you're the middle of three boys? I'm the middle of three boys. That's right, which is fun. I like being the, the middle one. You get to poke at both sides right yeah, a little I, bit. Though. I was a middle child. <laughs> it's a good position to be in. That's right. So you said you wanted to be an archaeologist growing up? I love – I thought – an archaeologist growing up was going to be like Indiana Jones. Like I, you know, when I grew up in the eighties and not early nineties, yeah, you're about that, that age yep. where that was a movie you were watching. That right? was the movie I wanted to be. I was going to have this whip and I have this, you know, fedora yeah, and I was going to go around and, and it's going to be great. So when I was a kid, I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. And my dad was like, <laughs> he was like, son, you, you know, they don't make a lot of money and you're digging holes in the ground a lot. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that, dad. Maybe I'll change my mind on that. <laughs> how, long, how long did that last? I think that lasted until about uh, ninth grade. And then I went on a different path. I wanted to be a forester. I wanted to work for the National Forest Service or whatever it may be and go out and be a ranger or work in the forest. And then I actually went to school. I started Auburn at yeah. the orientation as a as a forestry major. And they give you, at the time, you go to Camp War Eagle and you go and you take this exam. 
that says, hey, we want to determine your aptitude. Of, and based off that exam results, you qualify for different colleges. Gotcha. And uh, I had a bunch of friends who were doing engineering at the time. And they and I took the, the, the math exam. They're like, hey, you qualify for engineering. And I was like, you know what? I think I'll just change. And Did change that right surprise there. you? Uh, a little bit because I was a terrible student in high school. Really? I, I didn't get my academic act together until college. And uh, I look back now, I was like, I don't even know how I even got into college. Like, I was a terrible high school student. I didn't care about grades. I didn't care about any of those things. I just wanted to have fun. Like, I was the... Yeah, I was I, the kid who just wanted to have fun. Well, you were the middle child, too. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I had trouble getting out of college. <laughs> <laughs> Once I got in, I did pretty well. I got in four years, got out an engineering degree, but it, but it, it was definitely, I was not a good high school student, so I was a little surprised. Oh, I did pretty well in that. Maybe maybe I'll try something different. And it was a great choice. So was that aptitude test the thing that you said, okay, you know what, forestry's great, but I should probably go in this direction? I think it was part of it. Of course, you know, had friends who were going into engineering at the time and, you know, they were encouraging me, Hey, you need to think about this and mm -hmm. you need to consider it. You know, uh, you like working on cars, you like taking stuff, you know, those yeah. type things. And, and that combined with, Hey, that's something I can actually do. Like I never thought, Oh, I could do engineering. It's, some, yeah. it's something I actually actually do um, is really what drove me into making that decision. Back to the forestry thing a little bit though. You love camping though. I love camping. Yeah. I love camping. Now, for clarity, our camping involves now at this point in my <laughs> life, our camping involves a, a fifth wheel with air conditioning and sometimes cable TV. But we uh, we love camping as a family. Yeah, it's, it's something we do. We did a trip up to Maine two years ago, oh, all wow. the way up the East Coast, and I think we hit nine states. It was really just a phenomenal experience. My wife it. and I just did Maine this last summer and absolutely fell in love with Maine. Did, uh, drove from Boston up through the coast side, oh, coastline yeah. yes. and ended up in Bar Harbor. Yeah, that's where we were. And um, it's, it's one, of, I think it's my favorite state for three months a year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think. You're right. And that's what everyone says. Great summers. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But it is, it was beautiful and we loved it, but love the camping. Yeah. So engineering major at Auburn, how do you get to TVA? Was that a target for you or did you just kind of take me along that path? So it wasn't a target. Actually, it's funny. You know, I've obviously I've gone from archaeology to forestry, now into engineering. And I got into my sophomore year and I was like, hey, I need to do an internship. Yeah. And I started looking around like, what kind of internship do I really want to do? Because, you know, as a freshman and a sophomore, all you really do is is your core classes. Right. You're not getting into a lot of the discipline specific. I was a mechanical engineering specific major. And I remember like looking around like, what do I want to do? Do I want to build stuff? And I was like, you know what? I like ships. How about let's go build aircraft carriers. So I reached out to Newport News Shipyard and set up the that was my that was the first Auburn intern to go to Newport News Shipyard and actually worked in the reactor plant planning yard, helping build. Uh, we had the Nimitz uh, was 68 was the Nimitz and we were building the Reagan when we were there. Wow. It was a very cool experience. When I first saw in the notes that you said you build aircraft carriers, I'm thinking model aircraft carriers. <laughs> so what did that entail? So as an intern, it was a lot of coffee and copies, but, <laughs> but it was also, um, I was in the reactor plant planning yard. So this is kind of part of the journey. So they assigned me to the reactor plant planning yard. And of course at a shipyard like Newport news, it's two and a half miles long. I mean, it's an enormous it's facility, city. enormous facility. It is a city. They had their own junior college. Like it's an wow. enormous, they had a football team. I mean, it was an enormous facility. <laughs> And they had, I think, the second largest crane in the world at one time is there. I mean, it's a huge facility. So they have, you could imagine, there's all different disciplines and options, but they assigned the interns. You don't get to choose. They said, yeah. you're, you're going to go work here. And in, in the Reactor Point Planning Yard, I got to learn about the, like the main machinery room. I got to learn a little bit more about the reactor physics and how the reactors themselves worked. 
And that was my introduction and the beginning of a, what I would consider so far a lifelong love affair with nuclear power. Yeah. That's really where it started for me. And I said, you know what? This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. Well, not just nuclear power and what it does. And I, I'm going to get into some specifics of that in a little bit, but I'm thinking about building an aircraft carrier. I mean, here's really a, another city, a floating city. Yeah. How big are those things? Well, I want to say, if I remember correctly, the Nimitz class is essentially three football fields long. Wow. And I may be wrong, I, and I can't remember. That. I think it displaces 81,000 tons. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, it really is. It's a, it's a full... It's a full-blown city, and they build it in – think about it like they build it actually modular. They build pieces yeah. of it and put it together. So, for sake of discussion, they build six pieces, and they just kind yeah, they of put like, them together. Lego them together. Right. The same thing, with the same thing with the submarine. It's very cool. Very, yeah. very cool. How many people, once the sub is built, are on it? Oh, I actually don't know. I, believe it or not, I don't know that because we were always building. And the Nimitz, which was in for its 20-year refit at the time, so every so often you have to bring the reactors in. You have to bring the plant, the aircraft carriers in to do a – do a refit on it. And it was in for a refit. Um, and so there was a kind of a skeleton crew from the Navy at that point. Wow. On the ship. It's amazing. Man. Any idea how many people it took to build it? Oh, thousands. I mean, thousands. I, I mean, it would overall, you're talking about between all the suppliers, all the people actually at the facility installing and it, thousands and thousands of people. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's, it, it is that is an amazing facility. And that was your sophomore year? That was my sophomore year, yeah. Did you go back and do another internship or just that one? I year? just did that one internship for the for the semester and then um, finished out my college. And I got an offer from, from Newport News. I had three job offers out of college. Yeah. One was at Newport News back at the shipyard. One was for uh, Southern Railroad. Okay. Working on working on the railroad. <laughs> well, you're an engineer. <laughs> That's right. And the third one was with TVA yeah. at our Browns Ferry nuclear plant. And I thought about, you know, I, I felt comfortable going back to the uh, shipyard. I enjoyed that work. But then I thought about what I really enjoyed about that work. Yeah. And it was the nuclear, the nuclear piece of, of what I did. And I was like, I really want to do this. Yeah. I really want to do this. So I accepted the job with TVA, graduated on a Saturday, May 11th, started work on Monday, May 13th. <laughs> so you had a gap day. That's right. I moved. <laughs> and my wife and I, were, we were engaged at the time. And so we packed up. So if you live in Auburn, you know this, and but you live in a trailer. A lot of folks live in a trailer down in Auburn. So I lived in a trailer. We both had a trailer, and we packed up all our stuff in a U-Haul that fit literally in like one of those like ten foot U-Hauls. So you know, really yeah. small U-Hauls. But everything we owned in there, and drove up Saturday night, unpacked everything in the rental house we had, and started wow. work on Monday morning. Wow! So when you get to TVA, what are you doing? So I actually started as a maintenance engineer. Mm-hmm. So I because you were a mechanical engineer, I was a mechanical right. engineer, and I. And, and you have design engineer, but I realized I didn't want to be a design engineer. Like I was not built to be a design engineer. I loved being in the plant. I love being at the ship. I love being in the yard. Having your hands on stuff. Having your hands on stuff, being out in the plant. And I will tell you, that was a great first experience as an engineer. Because I think, you know, a lot of engineers come out of school, especially in today's age, and and you you actually go to work at home. You know, you go, yeah. it's, it's remote work, it's things like that. But I really wanted to understand the business, how things worked in the power plant. And so really working as a maintenance engineer was a phenomenal opportunity for me. I got to meet the maintenance crews. I got to, you know, I got to learn how they execute. I got to better know the operations staff, how they work together. And it was not only did I get that in-field experience, but I better understood the organization and how it worked. Oh, yeah. You, and, and, and I'm thinking about that. You saw the guts 
you know, how everything works. You're almost like a, a doctor. That's right. You get to see all this stuff, right? Yeah. So when you think about like I'm troubleshooting a problem, like, all right, in my mind, I can see that pump. I can see that valve. Yeah. I can see that component. Yeah. Not just a drawing. That's right. That's exactly right. And how long did you do that? I did that for two years. Matter of fact, the day I hit my two year anniversary, I started my next job. And that was? That was as an operator trainee. Yeah. And I got about a year into the engineering job, they take you into the simulator which is a simulator of the control room of the nuclear power plant. Does it look like the Star Trek uh, Enterprise Bridge? Way cooler than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Way cooler than that. And and uh, it is uh, and it doesn't look like the Simpsons either. It's it's uh, <laughs> it is uh, it is a and I walked in that room and I was like, "All right, this That's is it. what I want to do." Like I think of the world's coolest Nintendo. I mean, I I I am yeah. the generation that grew up on Atari's right, and Nintendo. Right. Like I grew up Pressing buttons and turning switches and things and and looking um, at a screen and looking at a screen and it was walking in that control room is what changed the trajectory of my career in a lot of ways. Now, do you have to be specially qualified before they'll train you in that position, or is that something that TVA is looking for people who great attitude and aptitude that can be trained to be a control room operator? There's actually two career paths to be a control room operator, to be a senior reactor operator. So you can um, start, you can be something called an instant SRO, senior reactor operator, which is what I was, which is if you meet the minimum educational requirements, you have a degree in engineering or a hard science, you've got a certain number of years, two years at a facility. So there's some requirements that you, and then you can go straight into the SRO training program, senior reactor operator training program, or you can actually start as an assistant unit operator which that is where we recruit from a very diverse pool. You have to have a certain minimum number of college credits in math and science and things like that. But we've got people who, who are assistant unit operators, which is a part of what I love about TVA is we, we really bring the community into our facilities. And it's uh, Walmart managers and teachers. Sometimes it's engineers who want to be yeah. in there. It's really just a broad network. And we're looking for people who have an aptitude for science, but they also have an attitude, yeah. you know, of, I want to be part of a bigger team. And so that, that is also a career path where you become an assistant unit operator for a couple of years. Then you can go and become a reactor operator for a couple of years and then work your way into a senior reactor operator role if you want to as well. So when TVA was launched in the Roosevelt administration, and my backstory on TVA is when we moved to Memphis in 1970, and I remember this very distinctly, it was my third or fourth grade class. We saw a film about TVA electrifies the valley. Yeah. And it was a lot of hydro. It was a lot of coal. But today, TVA is what, 40-something percent nuclear? Yeah, so we are generating right at 8,500 megawatts right now of uh, clean energy with our nuclear plants. And so it's, it's a large percentage of our nuclear facility, of, of our overall base load is nuclear. What, it, what is it people don't understand about nuclear that, I guess, scares them so much? Well, I think, you know, it's funny. I, I often joke around and say, if we would have just called it something different, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like like orange power or something, yeah. you know, it, yeah. I think people would have a different perspective of nuclear power and understanding it. But it's it's interesting. I think that that thought about nuclear power having this danger and you have to respect it. It's powerful. But this thought of it's this big, dangerous thing that nobody understands is, well, is they a share little, a name with a bomb. Yeah, it's, it's associated with bombs. So it's a little generational in, right. in nature. And I think what we're seeing is there's really a recognition. And we're seeing it in Washington. We're seeing it across the world of Really, this what's becoming broad support for this yeah. technology. Well, it's and clean power. It's clean power. It's baseload power. It's ninety something percent there. So I you think about like a diverse portfolio is so important. 
it's important not to have a an entire generating fleet made of just nuclear plants or entire generating fleet just made of coal or gas or mm. solar or whatever it may be. It's important to have diversity. But I think about like when I think about diversity, really nuclear is that backbone because it's yeah. on all the time. Solar power is, is a huge part of our future, but it's today in Chattanooga when it's yeah. 57 degrees outside and raining, there's not a lot of capacity coming from our solar facilities right now. And, you know, this brings up another question I always have. And then I hear about this, you know, when power gets tight and different companies trading power, you know. Yep. How do you do that? I mean, is there a line that you're sending power to another company? I mean, how does that work? We actually, so you think about TVA in our seven state region that we serve. We have a number of interconnection points mm-hmm. from other utilities that we can bring in power or sell power to, things like that. And so there's a number of connection points all across those seven state regions that we bring power in and out of. Again, I'm showing my ignorance. You got to remember, I was a public relations major, so <laughs> I don't have that aptitude for science as much as others. So in the control room, they hit a switch and the power, instead of going to A, goes to B? No, it's more actually the, the management of the grid actually occurs um, at our at our central kind of switching area, central location where all the, the grid is operated. It's currently in Chattanooga. We're building a really great facility in Mix County that's going to be really top-notch and, and and bring a lot of extra things to the Tennessee Valley of what we're going to be able to do. Um, but that's all done outside of the power plant. The power plant itself is really focused on what's happening inside the power plant and then immediately adjacent, like in their switchyard. Gotcha. And then the, the rest of the grid is kind of being operated by by our transmission organization within TVA. And they're controlling breakers closing, breakers opening across our seven states. Is it like a railroad line? Yeah, someone opening a switch and the uh, train goes it, this it way? It can be. Yeah, it yeah. can be. And sometimes it's voltage control. And I sometimes got- there's – so there's really um, – it's really – done in different ways. Sometimes we're bringing on units and shutting down individual units that are like remote, like some of our gas facilities that are kind of quick start and things like that. Gotcha. I got us a little off topic. I want to get back to, so you get in as an operator, mm-hmm. how long you do that and what do you do next? So I'd spent two years in training. So I, you know, I think that's something that people don't always really understand is just the level of competency that we demand mm-hmm. of our operators and really all of our nuclear professionals, but you spend two years in training to be a senior reactor operator or a reactor operator, two full years. And, That's and, a long time. And then when you get done with all the training, you take a two-week test, basically, by the administered by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to give you a license. What's a two-week test consist of? Well, you've got, it, it ends up taking a full two weeks, but you do uh, simulator scenarios. You do something called job performance measures where you go out in the plant and simulate doing things in front of the in front of the evaluator from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Then you take a written exam, um, six, eight-hour written exam. Um, and then if you don't pass, guess what? You don't get a license. Wow. And if you don't get a license, you yeah, maybe you don't have a job, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so wow. we had a an infant when I took mine, and so I was very nervous. <laughs> Any idea what the pass-fail rate is on that? Uh, it's pretty high, actually. It's, it's actually a really high pass rate because we – we actually, if somebody's not going to, we will not put somebody up to the exam if we don't believe they're going to pass. Yeah. It. So we actually remove, we call that it makes sense. We, we won't allow them to go take the exam with the NRC unless we know and confident that they'll make it. But it, we really put, we invest heavily in the training and development and identification of those candidates. And we really spend a lot of time ensuring their success, but it is a tremendous amount of personal commitment to make it happen. Almost like being a SEAL. Yeah, it, it's a yeah without the physical part. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> clearly I'm not that. <laughs> but it's a, it's and then it. Oh, by the way, once you get your license, every five weeks you go take an exam to keep it. Every five weeks. Yes, every five weeks you go take an exam to keep it. So, in every five weeks, 
Do they ask different questions or is it? Well, so that's part of the requalification program. And yes, they'll have different topics. They'll have different, you'll do a, you'll do a uh, exam in the simulator. Then you potentially take written exams. And then every year or two, you'll take another written, larger exam. So it's, it, it is a constant state of learning and training. Yeah. Yeah. A constant state. The people who achieve, you know, reactor operator, senior reactor operator status, the level of commitment they've done to achieve that. Is tremendous. I don't think enough people know about that. Yeah. I mean, that's really arduous. Well, and it's not, it is arduous and it's not just our operators. I mean, I look at our nuclear staff. The nuclear facilities are staffed with pipe fitters, boilermakers, electricians, INC technicians, security officers that are the some of the highest trained in the world at what they do. Yeah. Now, you pass your test, you're at Browns Ferry as an operator. That's right. How long are you at Browns Ferry? Uh, so I was at Browns Ferry a total of 13 years. Okay. But I did. So after I was an operator, I uh, became a shift manager. So I worked uh, kind of running a whole an operator operating crew. And then I came off shift to become uh, the what it's called the senior license holder operations superintendent. Senior license holder? Yes, for the facility. So there's uh, each, each nuclear facility, you have senior reactor operators, reactor operators and things, but you also have somebody who's designated as the senior license holder. So the the licensed senior licensed individual for the facility who, who's really responsible for license activities. So you're pretty much responsible for everything of something. All the license stuff. That's right. That's right. Is that when the nuclear federal nuclear commission comes in and says, Hey, we got a problem here. Let's go talk to Matt. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, you're held, you can be held accountable legally for, for things. So yeah, you are responsible as a senior license holder, but so is the, you aren't, you aren't a single person on the team, right? You've got, you got people who are the maintenance director and you work for an ops director and you've got a plant manager and a site vice president and things like that. And everybody's accountable for performance, yeah. but you are the ultimate senior license holder. You know, I, I know engineers love redundancy. Yes. And, and it sounds like you guys have a lot of redundancy, not just built in the technical aspect of it, but built into the responsibility yes, aspect of it. Very much so. And the caution you always have when you have so much redundancy and accountability is do you actually have accountability? And that's one thing we really focus on with our teams is everybody's role or responsibility of nuclear safety. Everybody has that responsibility. No matter what you do in the facility, we all have that responsibility. And just listen to you explain it. There's so many jobs that you pretty much, you go and you do your job, you go home, you, you chill out. But every five weeks that, yeah. to be tested on your job, that's, that's just baffling to me. <laughs> it is. It's that important. It really is. So you, you rise to the level of senior license holder. What's next? I move into work management. So I, uh, and when you think about work management, think of kind of like project management mm -hmm. slash like work control, like controlling the things that happen at the facility, like scheduling of outages and outages are a big deal in a nuclear plant. You want to shut the, shut the plant down, get all the work done and return to service the most efficient way possible. Mm -hmm. And then went to work management. And then, then there was the next twist in my career after that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, uh, I got a call from our chief nuclear officer at the time. And he said, hey, do you want to go to Sequoia Nuclear Plant? And I'll preface this was this was the most important thing I ever did in my career. So I started, I'll just start kind of flavored with that. But he said, hey, we, we have an opening for a maintenance director. And I was like, you know, I, God, we've lived in, in Madison, Huntsville area for 13 years. My kids are really happy. It's a great area. It's a too. great area. It's a phenomenal area. Madison, 
Huntsville and Chattanooga have so much in common yeah. of how they've grown and how they developed and the commitment of the people in that area. We're almost like siblings. You know, we're very similar. We tend to compete and fight with each other, but we complement each other, too. That's right. There is competition there, but there's also like, you know, you've got such a federal presence in Huntsville that you don't necessarily have here in Chattanooga. So it's a little different from uh, what professionals you're working with every day. But so he called me up and he said, hey, I want you to go to Sequoia, which would mean moving my family, picking my family up and moving them. And I was like, oh, that's really hard. So I went and talked to my wife. You know, there was a few tears shed. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, she came back and said, hey, let's do it. Let's How old go. were your kids at this time? Um, so my daughter was in fourth grade. Middle son was in second grade. And my youngest son was not yet in kindergarten. And that's almost about the last time you can move them. Because once they get into that preteen and teen, you really want to keep them stable. So I'd imagine that probably played a little role. In- that's exactly right. We, we actually had that exact conversation of, look, at some point, we're going to have to move. Yeah. Do we move now? And that's what we did. We picked it up. We moved and bought a house in Saudi Daisy about seven minutes from Sequoia and, yeah. uh, and started our life here in Chattanooga. But I say that was such an important part of my career because I, I think about like starting at Browns Ferry. That's all I knew. I knew that technology. It's a different style plant. It's a different type of plant. Yeah. It's a pressurized water reactor at Sequoia and a boiling water reactor here at Browns Ferry. And so I, I went from a place where I knew a lot about the plant. You could never know enough, but you knew a lot about the plant. Because you started ground floor there. That's basically. right. That's right. So I knew a lot about the plant and I could, you know, uh, no one's an expert, right? But I felt like I was competent with the plant. And I was going to a plant where I didn't know anybody. So I, not only did I know all these, all about the plant at Browns Ferry, I also knew all the people. Yeah. I knew so many people. So I went to an environment where I wasn't a technical expert. I didn't know anybody. And it forced me to learn how to lead. Yeah. If that makes sense. I think about like if you go into an environment in your career and you are the most technically competent, you understand the technology or whatever it may be, it makes it easier to lead in a lot of ways. Yeah. But it forced me to rely on other people and it forced me to ask questions differently. You know, that's a really interesting point you bring up. It forced you to learn how to lead because you were in an environment and it was safe and that's you right. knew how to do it. And then you're thrown into a foreign world. Yeah. Did you have to change, not necessarily your outlook, but how you talked and listened to people and related with them? Yeah. I, you always hear the old ad, you always know the answer before your the question's asked, right? But yeah. in an environment where you grow, you've grown up largely professionally, there's a natural tendency to do that, right? Oh, I've seen that. I know what the problem is. You, you really had to listen for understanding. And then you had to ask questions for clarification. Yeah. And that was, that's a skill you have to learn as a leader. And it's not everybody gets that. Yeah. I feel like you have to jump in to solve everything. You got to listen first. You know, it's interesting. You said that was the most important twist in your career, because I think there's a lot of people who are wondering how they can grow. I look back on my own career and the way I choose to grow was I left Memphis. I said, I similar to you. I've I've been at the same station for 11 years. I know everyone. I know everyone in town. And I'm going to go plop myself somewhere I don't know his soul. Yeah. And sometimes you got to throw the dice like that. It is risk, right? I mean, I was uprooting my whole family, right? Yeah. I mean, I was like, well, if this doesn't work out, what am I going to do? And you were going to make it work out because you uprooted <laughs> That's right. Family. I was like, we're going to make this work no matter what. And uh, and it did work, right? I mean, I, I was successful, became plant manager and site vice president at Sequoia. But it's that decision in a career to take a risk. Yeah. Everybody should do it at some point in your career. Everybody should say, you know what? I'm taking a step. Yeah. Um, and look, there's not always a parachute. 
Yeah. There's not always a parachute there. And you know what? I, I call it like a little bit of deep in deep in leadership. Like you kind of just jump in mm-hmm. and you figure out how to swim on the way out. Yeah. You know, and that's, <laughs> that's well, a piece and, and I don't think people like yourself who, who go through this give themselves enough credit of those building blocks they have. And you really don't understand and appreciate the experience you have until you do something like that. Yeah. And put yourself at risk and go, okay, that's why I had all these things before. Well, I think about like when I when I went into license class, even like I was betting on myself because I was I remember that the ops director at the time says, hey, I just want you to know if you don't pass this license class, I don't have a job for you. <laughs> There's so no pressure. there. Yeah. Man. So I, it's almost this idea of you've you got to bet on yourself. Yeah, you got to bet. And, and there's just there's timing and there's a little bit of luck associated with it. But you got to be willing to place some bets on yourself. And so many people are unwilling to place a bet on themselves. That's such a good lesson. Yeah. And those bets come in different forms. Oh, they do. But you have yeah. to get out of your comfort zone. That's right. Yeah. That's particularly exactly right. if you're trying to grow your career. So you end up becoming the plant manager at Sequoia. Yep. And how long did you do that? I did that for a couple of years, um, which I loved. I love the plant man. I love the people at Sequoia yeah. and uh, getting to know them and better understand them. I've got lifelong friends and acquaintances there. Um, then I became um, the site vice president at Sequoia. So in our nuclear business, each nuclear plant has an on-site executive. Gotcha. And that's what the site vice president is. And I was the on-site executive at Sequoia for right around two years. And then I got the next call. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I got the next call, which was the most challenging from a personal standpoint. And it was, hey, Matt, we want you to go back to be the site vice president at Browns Ferry. We'd lived here now for six years at the time, five, six years at the time. And and uh, the CNO at the time said, hey, we want you to go. To, we want you to go to, to Browns Ferry, back to Browns Ferry. We help help with performance, help, you know, help with the team. We think you'll be a good fit. And then we had we had to make a decision as a family is, hey, I've got. My daughter's a junior in high school. Yeah, that's a hard My son is in eighth grade. Oh, by the way, we're in the middle of stinking COVID. Oh. Like literally, this was actually, it was 2020. It was the summer of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so my wife, who's an elementary school librarian here downtown, is like, I don't know. We can't move the kids. Yeah. So then I started my journey down at Browns Ferry where I did what you and I talked about. I commuted. I would leave Monday morning at like 3.30 in the morning. And then I'd come home Friday nights. Yeah, that's hard. How long did you do that? For two years, right? Two years. Yeah. It was tough. My God, it was so rewarding going back to Browns Ferry. I bet. It was, it, it was an honor to run that station. If you don't know, Browns Ferry is the second largest power plant of all power plants in the entire country. Really? Yeah. Nuclear, non-nuclear, the second largest power plant of all plants in the whole country. I mean, it's 3,900 megawatt facilities. It's a huge facility. Yeah, that's a lot of responsibility too. That's right. We, we were able to achieve an excellence rating while I was there and it, I was so proud and honored to lead that group of people. Oh, I bet you were. It was such an honor that really just all the people at all of our nuclear facilities and all of our generic facilities just so committed to to the mission. And it was just such an honor to get to. to well, lead. you made a pretty big personal sacrifice to do that, too, because it it's not easy, number one, commuting. And it's not easy being away from your family, but particularly when your kids are in those high school years and your presence is so important in that and, and your wife, what a champion. Oh yeah. She was the, she was the trooper. Now there was a few days, like, you know, it's, it was two hour drive back home and yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm going to come home tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I, I could tell from the, the tone of the voice and, the, and um, I was like, you know what? I think I need to drive home tonight yeah, for, for the seven. night. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be home. That's right. I'll bring dinner with me, you know? And, uh, but she was such a trooper. I mean, she was working full time, Kids were all in school at a very challenging time during COVID and yeah. mask wearing and and just 
online learning for a while. It's just so, it was such a challenging time. And she really, she carried the water during that time. She really did. Yeah. What brought you back to Chattanooga that you're stationed here now? So I got the opportunity to come into this senior VP role um, downtown. We had Bob Duncan, who was our senior, who was my predecessor, was retiring. And, you know, I've spent 20 something years at a power plant. And I really wanted to get an idea of what it's like to lead a fleet. And uh, and so that's really what gave me this opportunity. Explain that, lead a fleet. So, you know, we've got, um, of course, we've got our nuclear fleet. We've got Watts Bar facility, which is just between here and Knoxville. We've got Sequoia, which is like 25-minute drive from here. Yeah. And then we've got Browns Ferry. So that's our nuclear fleet. So it's just those three? It's those three. It's seven units. Okay. Um, it's seven total units. And and are they all, you talked earlier about one was a boil facility, one was a pressure water facility, and it never occurred to me that nuclear power plants would be different. I, I would think they were all pretty much standard. They are different. They are different. So um, Watts Bar and Sequoia are sister stations, so they are very similar designs. They're both they're both Westinghouse, so I'll go through it. They're Westinghouse four-loop ice condenser plants, so that they are pressurized water reactor plants. And what does that mean? So that means that you circulate, there's two loops. Think of it as there's two flow loops. You've got the primary loop, which is where hot water circulates through the reactor vessel itself and gets hot, but it doesn't boil. It doesn't turn to steam. It's very it's high pressure and it's high temperature. And then it goes to a steam generator. Think of a boiler. Mm-hmm. And it heats that boiler up and that steam goes from that steam generator and turns the turbine. At Browns Ferry, which is the boiling water reactor, you boil the water in the reactor vessel itself, and that steam goes straight to the turbine. There's pluses and deltas to both type designs. Yeah. And I couldn't tell you what the plus or minus No, but it's really, it is, there's one of the big pluses is for the Browns Ferry facility. Each unit operates for two years without having to shut down. Wow. They load enough fuel in the reactors to operate for two years, and they never have to shut down, which is the beauty of nuclear power. Yeah. You don't, you refuel the reactor. You only change one third of the fuel out every two years. So at that two years and you got to change the fuel out, what do you do with the spent fuel? So the spent fuel, we'll take the spent fuel, put it into a a spent fuel pool. We'll let that heat decay off for a while. And then we'll put it in something called a dry cast storage container, which is um, basically it's long-term storage. And Mm -hmm. so you take the assemblies, you put it in this metal concrete and you actually take all the water out and you helium um, dry it. Um, and then you store it on a concrete pad. And I think people think they're, you know, I think when I think people think about nuclear power, they, you know, obviously waste is a concern, mm-hmm. but there's a context that I don't think people, everybody gets. Browns Ferry has been in operation since 1973. Every piece of fuel that it's used since 1973 is either in the fuel pool or sitting on the dry cast pad. The dry cast pad is about a hundred yards by 50 yards. So think about that all for 1973. That's the size. So 50 years, it fits in that space. That's right. Yeah. So it's not, I don't think people yeah, there's understand not this, Yeah, there's not. It's, it's really interesting. And I always, whenever we do site tours, I always intentionally want to show that to people. Yeah, that is interesting. So you're in charge of all three of those plants. Not all, just me. Our chief nuclear officer is Tim Roush, who's a phenomenal leader. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that just because he's my boss. <laughs> 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 so, um, and then I've got really oversight in the corporate functions. And then my peer, Danny Bost, he's got operations. So the site vice presidents report to him. And then I've got really oversight for engineering projects, our new nuclear organization, regulatory affairs. So I've got the, what I would call like the extras, the extra organizations. And Danny has the direct responsibility for the sites themselves. Gotcha. gotcha. I, I want to get to a couple more things before we run out of time. Uh, and one of them is the weather that we've been having. And I want to compare the reliability that TVA has shown, 
I'm going to compare it to Texas. My daughter lives in Austin and they went through what they went through with, is it ERCOT? Yeah, ERCOT. That's right. Why, why do they seem to have a problem? And I understand rolling blackouts are necessary, but it seems they're not nearly as reliable as TVA has shown to be with last year. Yeah, we had the cold and then the cold we had this year. Well, you know, in our opinion, rolling blackouts are never acceptable. You know, we, we did not meet our commitment in the Christmas Eve of 2022 to the people we serve. We didn't meet our commitment. So that's an, even it's the first time in 70 years and many people are interrupted for 15 minutes, but that's, that's not okay. You know, that's not okay. That's not our standard, which is excellence. And, but you talk about the different markets, really what it comes down to is just the power of the public, really the, the benefits and the strength of the public power model. It is the partnerships that we have with the local power companies, um, but really the investment and the recognition that it's really about, it's not about making money for us and for our model. Our, our about, it's about reliability mm-hmm. and affordability for the people we serve. That's really what it comes down to. We aren't looking to make profit, right? That's what makes our model so great. Like You think about other companies, like in an open market, at the end of the day, it's really about profit. And our model is really about reliability and affordability. Because we recognize that how important that is to people we serve. Does that go back to how TVA was chartered to electrify the valley and, and through the federal government? Yes, it really goes back to our mission, which is really, you know, economic development. It's energy. It's an environmental. And you bring up economic development. And to me, that's that is the piece that I see TVA most active in in the business community. We kind of take for granted the power aspect but when a Volkswagen comes in, you got to have meetings with TVA. Oh yeah, for the power that they're going to need. Well, look at Blue Oval City and yeah, uh, great in point. Western Western Tennessee. I mean, we're heavily involved. We're building them their own switchyard and power lines to a facility that's going to be a heavy usage, right? And we mm-hmm. that's that's possible. We have to bring new generation on to support all this growth. I mean, the growth in Tennessee Valley and, and it's one that I always give our uh, economic development folks a hard time. It's like you're making my job a lot harder. Because they're doing such a great job of recruiting jobs in the Tennessee Valley. Yeah. Such a great job recruiting job, people having jobs, not working for TVA. TVA's done nothing but get smaller throughout the years, right? We've right. gotten more efficient and smaller. But it's really about creating these jobs for people at Volkswagen, at Blue Oval City, at, you name it, of all the, the Vocker, you know, it, there's all these jobs that are getting created. And that's a challenge for us sometimes because now that's new generation that we have to supply. So from a TVA standpoint, uh, sources of power, nuclear, yep, hydro. That's right. Coal still? Coal, yep. We, we also have a number of coal facilities. And how about solar? Yep, we have solar uh, we, we, and gas. And gas. That's right. And pump storage is a huge piece. It, it kind of goes into the hydro, but, you know, Raccoon Mountain, just west of here. Is a- yeah, we didn't even touch on that. That's the coolest thing in the world. It pumps water up the mountain and then back down to generate power. It's essentially a grid-scale battery. So think about it, you... Low demand, yeah. Or you keep that power plant, that gas plant on, or the whatever the, or use your excess energy to you to pump water up, and then when it's high demand, you release turn it. around, release it down into the generators and turn it on. It is an absolute marvel of engineering. Oh, it really is. I and, and anyone in the Chattanooga area who hasn't been up to Raccoon Mountain and just seen the reservoir yeah. up there, it's it's just incredible. You know, we we would love to build another one. Somewhere. Yeah. It is because uh, it's so valuable. It is it is the, I would say, most admired assets in the utility industry. Does anyone else have one? Yeah, a lot of people have them. Not all they have that same size and capacity, but a lot of folks, a lot of utilities have them. Um, Southern's been trying to build one recently. Uh, I think Duke's got one. So there's there's other utilities who have them, but they Raccoon Mountain really is a 
and the work and engineering that goes to maintain and build that facility is just amazing. Yeah, it really is. I got two more questions. Yeah. You built and drove a solar car. That's right. In college. That's Talk right. That. <laughs> so, so I was like in college and I was working for the university at the Foy Student Union, which is a whole different story. It's an information desk. It was open 24 hours a day. You used to be able to call and ask any question you wanted to. But uh and we had to do our best to answer it. Um, but I was like, you know, I need to like join a club or something. I'm just doing school and work. I kind of need to do something yeah. else other than that. And uh, and so I joined the solar car team and we were helped. They, they kind of already started the construction and build on it. And we finished out the build on it, put in a few competitions. We didn't win any competitions, but it was a really cool experience. So, how, how long could it drive until it needed? Oh, it, they got, of course, now they've got them for they can drive for you know, hours and hours and hours. Yeah. But at the time it was like an hour or so that it, that it wouldn't, it couldn't go very long. The goal of that design was as light as possible and reliable as possible. Like keep it reliable. <laughs> all right. Before we get to the last question, I do want to remind our listeners who makes all this possible. And a big thank you to the Tennessee Valley authority for sponsoring my morning cup, follow TVA on social media to learn more about its multifaceted mission of service and visit TVA.com forward slash do good here to explore exciting career opportunities at TVA, just as Matt's been talking about today. It's been a heck of a path. Uh, Last question for you. What would you tell your 25-year-old self is really important for a happy life? Uh, Stop eating as much Mexican food. It's probably (laughs) one of them. Um, (laughs) So um, I I will say, uh, to be honest, if I was looking back, I would say enjoy the journey a little bit more. Yeah. Enjoy the journey just a little bit more. Be in the moment. Be in the moment, especially, you know, my kids and I have a, like, my kids are all phenomenal thanks to their mother. And, and like, I have great kids, amazing wife. And, um, and I have a great relationship with all my kids. But like, I think about like, there's stuff I missed out on a little bit that, uh, I really wish I wouldn't have missed out on. There were some baseball games and, and soccer games and some things like that, you know, that I missed out on. And I think I wish I would have done a little bit more to enjoy the journey. Well, and as you're building your career, you think, okay. I got to stay here and do this when you should really be at that ball game. That's right. Yeah, you know, that's exactly. And right. as we get older, we do look back and go, you know, I really wish. I, would. I think everybody's got some of that, yeah, right? Because there's absolutely. always like, oh, I could have done more. There's this idea of I could have done more, and I, you know, it's the dad guilt or the mom yeah. guilt. And many of us, your parents, understand that, right? It's just I could have done more. What? Why? What? But it, you know, when I look back, I can young men and women that my kids are becoming. Like, holy crap, they're pretty great kids. Yeah, like somebody did something right. Maybe it was all my wife, but like. It's still a great journey. Yeah. And speaking of kids, I, I look at mine too, and we're in pretty good hands moving forward. I yeah, think. that's right. People think this, uh, this generation, the younger generation is lazy or they're not lazy. No. As a matter of fact, they just want to be part of something bigger. Right. And, you know, I'll just plug my company. We are part of something bigger. Right. Yeah. And that's what I would encourage everybody. I have a rule for my kids, my th- three rules for my kids. And they're always ragging me about it. And they're like, dad, golly. <laughs> you know, but Whatever you decide to do, if you want me to help you pay for school or trade school, whatever it is, you have to enjoy what you do. You got to be able to support yourself and you have to do good for the world. And I think kids want to do good for the world. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, they're not nearly as selfish as I was growing up. Yeah, I'll put it that that's way. right. That's exactly right. Matt, what a great conversation and a great message to end on. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. I, I did too. Thanks for being here. Definitely. Thanks. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.